Clovis, building a healthy life together. What's up, everybody? Justin Nault here with another episode of the Perfect Paleo Podcast. My guest today is the one and only Rob Wolf. Now, if you're listening to this, you're listening to a paleo podcast, which makes me believe that you probably have some experience or exposure to the world of paleo. If so, there is a very small chance that you don't know who Rob Wolf is. He is hands down one of the most recognizable faces and names in this whole ancestral health and wellness movement that we're all a part of. I think of Rob as sort of a unicorn, honestly, because in the world of health and wellness in 2019, unfortunately, I think it's becoming more and more rare to find influencers slash experts slash podcasters or whatever who are truly qualified to be giving health and wellness advice, who understand the human body, biochemistry, nutrition, fitness, exercise sciences on such a deep level that they can really point people in the right direction with evidence-based lifestyle interventions. And if you've consumed any number of episodes of my podcast or any Clovis content in general, you know that I constantly rant about biochemistry. Um, People just keep asking me questions about how do I get healthy? How do I lose fat? How do I build muscle? How do I this? How do I that? And the answer is always biochemistry. I tell people they'll find all the answers that they're seeking in the biochemistry. Now, the part of the story that you may not know is I tell people that because that's what Rob Wolf told me approximately three years ago, and it changed my life in a very significant way. Rob is an actual biochemist. He's a former research biochemist. So when I reached out to Rob, just trying to deepen my knowledge of human metabolism uh, in general, he pointed me in the direction of a particular biochemistry book that I picked up called Human Metabolism Lecture Notes by Michael Palmer. And keep in mind, at the time, I was already a nutritional therapist and thought I had a pretty firm grasp on human nutrition, and I just could not have been more wrong or blown away by what happened when I started studying this, essentially a textbook. I mean, I was literally Googling definitions of words like every other sentence. Like, I crawled through this book at a painstakingly slow pace, trying to wrap my head around all of the concepts within it. And it ended up being the first of many biochemistry books and textbooks that I absorbed over the next three years. And I honestly credit Rob, whether he knows it or not, um, for allowing me to get the kind of unbelievable transformations that I get in my clients. It's really never happened that I come across a client that I haven't been able to get results in. And I think it's because of my grasp of biochemistry. And I know for sure that I wouldn't have gone down that route without reaching out to Rob. So I'm just super grateful that I was able to meet Rob in person and was able to develop a relationship with him that allowed me to go to him for advice and questions. And he's just been a wealth of information and support for me, and I can't thank him enough for that. Uh, Like I said, I met Rob uh, about a little over three and a half years ago now at PaleoFX, actually alongside CJ Hunt. I met CJ and Rob at the same exact time, and both have become friends, and I'm super grateful for them for all the support they've given Clovis and all the advice they've given me, and 
Rob and I have gone on to become co-collaborators on this new film project with our dear friend Diana Rogers, uh, Sacred Cow, her new documentary film. You may remember from my interview with her on the podcast talking about this new film, uh, actually a docu-series that we're working on together, myself as a contributor to the funding of the film, and Rob Wolf as one of the key experts, and I believe now a co-executive producer on Sacred Cow. So that's just a little brief history on how Rob and I met and how our personal and professional relationship has grown over the years. And if any of you were at Paleo FX two years ago, you may have seen Rob completely dismantling my jujitsu game and just kicking my ass on the mats. <laughs> I was I was but a yellow belt at the time and just got slaughtered by Rob, but it was really fun. He was super supportive and he's actually a, a quite a great teacher as well, which I'm not surprised by given the content that he's been putting out for years and years in the space. And I really, really hope we get a chance to train together again sometime, uh, maybe this year's Paleo Effects. So we will see how that goes. So a super quick backstory on this particular episode. I reached out to Rob after the hugely popular and much-anticipated vegan versus omnivore debate on the Joe Rogan podcast. That was between Chris Kresser and Dr. Joel Kahn. And I just want to be clear that I am a huge fan of Chris Kresser's. I still dig into his work very regularly. His blog is fantastic. His podcast is fantastic. His books are great. Uh, his book, Your Personal Paleo Code, was actually one of the first paleo books I ever read. I believe that was way back in 2015. And I just could not have more respect for Chris. He's absolutely brilliant. But I found the episode as a whole to just be wildly frustrating to consume. Now, I'm going to kind of leave my own opinions of it there because you're going to hear some of my opinions in this episode, and I highly recommend that you go listen to that episode yourself and decide for yourself if I had any right at all to be frustrated by the debate. That is episode number 1175 of the Joe Rogan Experience. You will also hear Rob and I reference another episode that came out shortly after the vegan omnivore debate, and that was a debate between Lane Norton and Dom D'Agostino. That was basically a high-carb versus ketogenic debate on the same podcast, The Joe Rogan Experience. So check that one out as well, and you'll have a better idea of what Rob and I are talking about in the early portion of this interview. So let me tell you a bit more about Rob and get all professional on you. Rob Wolf is a former research biochemist and is a two-times New York Times best-selling author of The Paleo Solution and Wired to Eat. Rob has transformed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people around the world via his top-ranked iTunes podcast, books, and seminars. Rob has functioned as a review editor for the Journal of Nutrition and Metabolism and as a consultant for the Naval Special Warfare Resiliency Program. He serves on the board of directors slash advisors for Specialty Health Inc., the Chickasaw Nation's Unconquered Life Initiative, and a number of innovative startups with a focus on health and sustainability. Rob holds a purple belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and is a former California State powerlifting champion and a 6-0 amateur kickboxer. Rob Wolf has provided seminars in nutrition and strength and conditioning to a number of entities, including NASA, Naval Special Warfare, the Canadian Light Infantry, and the United States Marine Corps. Rob lives in Reno, Nevada with his wife, Nikki, and daughters, Zoe and Sagan. And just to 
piggyback on that, you need to check out Rob's podcast, the Paleo Solution Podcast, because Rob and his wife, Nikki, have been doing an amazing Q&A series uh, where they just answer questions from Rob's audience, and those have just been fantastically valuable episodes, and I highly, highly recommend you check those out. Aside from the Paleo Solution Podcast, you definitely want to find Rob Wolf on all of the social media networks. He can be found on Instagram, Das Rob Wolf. That's D-A-S-R-O-B-B-W-O-L-F. That's on Instagram. And you can also find everything you need to know about Rob and his work at robwolf.com, R-O-B-B-W-O-L-F.com. Definitely check out his books because they are really the perfect blend of digestible and understandable information on the paleo slash ancestral diet, um, also with some peppered in biochemistry, which I absolutely love, particularly Wired to Eat. Um, you really, really need to check these books out. They can be absolute game changers for you and your loved ones. As always, this episode is brought to you by my company, Clovis. I am the founder and CEO of Clovis, and I am in the business of transforming people's lives. And I have recently announced my new membership platform that I am launching, and you can find out more about that at imclovis.com slash start. I am a certified nutritional therapist, a specialist in sports nutrition, and a specialist in fitness nutrition, and you can work with me one-on-one. I will also give you full-blown access to everything that my members-only website has to offer. You can get that for free for seven days at imclovis.com start, and you can also see some incredible transformational testimonies from people at that same website, and you can make the decision for yourself if you want to jump in and work with me on your personal health and wellness transformation. If you're not quite ready for a custom nutrition plan and you want to check out my line of paleo-friendly nutritional powders, The Perfect Paleo Powder, you can do so at iamclovis.com. Check out The Perfect Paleo Powder and use promo code Perfect. Podcast, all one word, perfect podcast at checkout for 10% off your entire first order. The Perfect Paleo Powder is literally the only shake you will ever need. It is a meal replacement, a protein supplement, a green superfood multivitamin, a probiotic, a prebiotic, an antioxidant, and anti inflammatory all in one. It is the only product of its kind and it is the best all around nutritional powder on the market today hands down. Go check out the ingredients and see for yourself at imclovis.com. Don't forget to use promo code PERFECTPODCAST for 10% off. All right, let's get on with the episode. Here is my conversation with Rob Wolf. Enjoy. What's up, everybody? Justin Nall here with another episode of the Perfect Paleo Podcast. I am joined today by a man who really needs no introduction. He is a best-selling author, he is a podcaster, he is a biochemist, and a fellow jujitsu addict. <laughs> Please welcome to the show, the one and only Rob Wolf. Rob, what's up, man? Thanks so much for being here. Huge honor to be here. Thanks. Yeah, man. So plenty of stuff to talk about today, and I think this is the first time for you in years that you can actually say your six listeners can't be wrong line, and it would be an accurate <laughs> statement. So, uh, man, it just means the world to me that you came on. I really appreciate it. I am willing to bring down property values anywhere. So it's a huge honor. Usually wherever I go, careers, um, uh, you know, like crater into a mountainside afterwards. So <laughs> We'll see. I'm, I'm hoping for the best, man. I'm going okay. to gamble okay. it. So um, we could, I mean, we could jump in and start with the, the usual podcast thing. Like, who is Rob? What does Rob do? What's Rob's favorite book and favorite submission from the guard, right? We could play that game. But uh, I think that most people listening to a paleo podcast 
are probably pretty familiar with with you. So I kind of want to just jump into the good stuff because I selfishly want to get your thoughts on so many things. And um, before we dive in, I just want to give people a bit of a setup for this particular conversation. So I've been wanting, you've been on the top of my list for the podcast since I started the podcast, but I just had to reach out to you immediately after these two recent nutrition debates, these back-to-back debates that were on the Joe Rogan podcast. And you were the first person I thought of while listening to these exchanges that were at times for me infuriating. And it's, it's funny because uh, Diana Rogers and I were texting during the debate and after we were talking about how epic your Instagram was <laughs> after <laughs> the vegan omnivore debate, you're just kind of losing your mind about some of the things that Khan was saying. And I feel like your beef on the episode was obviously based on the hard science, while my beef with the episode was a bit more about the general public, because I sort of feel like everyone involved in these debates failed the general public. Right. And that's just my, my take on it. And like, I love Chris Kresser's work. His work changed my life back in 2013 when he was still, it was still your personal paleo code when I read it back then, that book that he did. Right. But I just feel like as long as we have academics arguing with academics in this kind of pissing contest with an audience of the general public, that's not going to change any of the problems that the country is facing. So I just, for the record, I kind of want to get, what was your take on these episodes? Man, so, you, you know, with the cresser uh, con debate, um, Chris pinged me maybe three months before this thing actually aired because Joe was interested in, in setting this up. And Chris, being the smart guy that he is, knew that this had the potential to be a, a you know, excrement-filled um, disaster. And so... You know, the, after I did my my kind of deconstruction of the movie What the Health, which I spent 60, 70 hours literally going minute by minute, here's the claim, here's what, it, you know, my take on it. Um, the, those guys really wanted to do a debate. And I said, debates are for theater. If we really want to do something, here's what we do. We pick out a couple of topics that we're going to present on and we get some people to present on those topics and uh, we could do a coin toss or, you know, however one person goes, they present their view on this topic. And then the next person goes and they prevent, present their view on this topic. And then there's an opportunity for each of these folks to basically cross-examine the other and then open this up to a panel, have the panel cross-examine both of these people and then move forward. Now, next topic. And w- when I suggested that and the folks at the... Institute for Human Machine Cognition, uh, uh, IHMC out in Florida, um, they were willing to host this. They were willing to put all this stuff on. And when I, I threw that out to um, uh, the folks that did What the Health, uh, they retreated immediately. They wanted oh. nothing to do with that. And so that was the way that I have presented this. Uh, uh, National Public Radio wanted Myself and a few other folks to debate um, John Mackey, CEO of, of Whole Foods, and um, uh, John uh, McDougall and a few other. So it was going to be kind of vegan versus paleo thing. And I laid out that it had to be in this following format. And we could talk about health, ethics, sustainability, but they needed to be discrete entities and they needed to be discussed in a it, it, basically a cross-examination kind of format. And the same thing, they pulled the plug on it and they didn't want to do it. And so 
Chris articulated all this to Joe and I did too. Like there were multiple email exchanges, multiple text exchanges. Hey, we really need to have this format. Joe didn't want it to be that, that like controlled. Like he didn't feel comfortable with it being that controlled, which he then in talking to him, he, he regretted because he was basically portrayed as being, um, siding with Chris. And so there was a whole bunch of, of kind of backlash around that. And so he was like, wow, you guys are right. I should have listened to that. We should have, you know, set it up in that format. So, I mean, just the, the basic format of a quote debate is really, really problematic because you, you can't, um, what I was doing to some degree in my, my, uh, Instagram post was, was trying to provide that, uh, QAQC process, that quality control thing. Okay, here's the claim. Okay, we have a claim about a metabolic ward study with 100 people and increasing saturated fat correlating with, with LDL counts. Like th There should have been an opportunity to deconstruct all that stuff and get back in and revisit it. And okay, here are the claims. This is what the data supports. And you just couldn't really uh, do that in real time. Like Chris did an amazing job staying on as on top of that as he could, but, uh, it, you know, it was, um, it, Joe was consistently having to reel con back in and get clarification. And he really only asked Chris for clarification on one point. And Chris was like, Oh, okay, maybe I misstated that, but it made it very imbalanced because I, I would go out on a limb and say that con was, was being very fast and loose with the facts and, and uh, uh, kind of doing some some logical fallacies in the way he was presenting things. And Joe would call him on those things. So it, it created a, a picture that looked like he was very much on Cresser's side when, in fact, jo uh, Joe was just kind of like doing what any good debate moderator would do, which is trying to, you know, keep, keep people within certain lane lines. But, you know, it just made the whole thing appear as if, um, you know, the world was stacked against the, the kind of... Uh, vegan idea. And so it didn't play out well to anybody. Like I, I think Joe deeply regretted doing it at all. Chris kind of regretted doing it at all. Um, I, I think it provided a, a platform and venue for Khan to honestly uh, uh, gain a lot more um, traction and, and, you know, airplay. And it, there, it, one of the problems today is that if people disagree with someone else, then they just try to shut them down entirely instead of having a debate, even on college campuses. It's like, oh, I don't like that person's politics, so they shouldn't be able to speak. So I think that that's a, a terribly problematic uh, kind of scenario. But at the same time, um, having the, the debate set up in, in more of almost like a... a, a a PhD review meets a legal discovery process, you know, which is kind of the way that I, I had, you know, suggested we do this. There's a lot more, um, you're going to really think through what you say and what you present if you know that the other side is going to have an hour to go sit down and pick it apart, take notes, do research and come back and ask you questions on that you know, and, and vice versa. Like it's going to, it's going to make people be very, very um, on point with what they, they are doing. And it was a long time ago, but uh, Gary Tobbs and, um, oh my God, I'm blanking on the guy's name. He's the strength coach, nutrition guy that just got kicked out of the scene for like groping some girls at a conference. I'm totally blanking on his name. Alan Aragon, totally okay. blanking on the guy's name, but they, they did a debate like this and they used a format like this and it was good 
because it, it um, some of the shenanigans on both sides were kind of shaved off. Like I've seen both of these folks present the same material that they presented there, but they presented it in a much more concise and honest way because the other person had an opportunity to, to step back and look at what was said and what the claims were, and then, you know, really deconstruct that. So I, I think going forward, it really doesn't make sense to do just kind of an open format debate like like what happened there. And this is why I just absolutely refuse to do these things. If someone agrees to do it in the format that I've laid out, then I'd be more more than happy to do that. Well, the other issue, I think, is that it's 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 the problem of whether or not you know your audience. So again, when it's when it's academic versus academic, it's like the Joe Rogan podcast, one of the most popular podcasts to ever exist. It probably is the most popular podcast, but that certainly doesn't mean the majority of his listeners are academics. Right. So what happens is when you don't have this panel situation that you're talking about for fact checking, I mean, you have 60% of the standard American diet being refined processed carbs and high fructose corn syrup and damaged oils, like as bad as it gets. And they don't have an understanding at all of biochemistry. And then without those fact checks, you can have like, to me, what was the most infuriating line ever spoken on a podcast, that idea of, well, I've cut open this many hearts and I've never scooped sugar out of arteries. Right, right. And you're like, oh no, people think that's an accurate statement. Right, right. You know, you know that, and it all, it's, it's meme worthy. It's all these things. And that's what I saw in the comments. I made the mistake of looking at comments and it was, this was a bully situation. This was two versus one and Khan didn't get to speak and this and that. But, but again, at the end of the day, we have hundred million diabetics and pre-diabetics and it's two academics arguing over TMAO and glycine and methionine. And I'm like, you might as well be speaking Chinese right now. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So who's it trying to help that? I guess that's my question. Right, right. And it, it's, uh, that's a really good, that, that's, that's a good observation and a, a very good question. And it, at the end of the day, I, I don't know that it really helped anybody. Um, it, it at least set a high or, or either a high or low watermark for like the way that these things can play out. And so in the future, whether uh, Joe would be willing to tackle this or like if someone like the IHMC or, or some other entity wanted to tackle something like this, I think it makes the case for, okay, we really need to do it in this other type of format, or it, it, there's just really no point in doing it. Like it's not going to move the conversation forward at all. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's the biggest thing. If there's a silver lining to it, I think it was a huge leap in the right direction of getting the conversation started, if nothing right. else. Right. And, yeah. um, you know, it was interesting too, because these two debates were back to back. So the second one was this, the Lane Norton, Dom D'Agostino one, which was, was almost a little more scary to me because Lane was giving direct actionable advice that, and I, I wrote about this in the email to you, just that I think people are going to take that advice. So, you know, you have this guy talking about getting, again, from, from this is how I get from 10% body fat to 4% body fat. And this is what everybody should be doing. Again, when we have 100 million diabetics and pre-diabetics, like who gives a shit about this guy's body fat? And then when I, when I really got upset was I was listening to him in the car and he had that, he had his little one-liner about, yeah, I stopped for fast food on the way to my leg day workout. And then my wife gets mad at me because I have to stop the leg workout to go to the bathroom five times. And I just threw my hands up, was like, what are we doing to the general public right now? Like, we're going to hurt people at this point. You know, it, it was so upsetting to me. Well, man, I mean, I don't know that 
we collectively or even Lane's good or bad advice is going to hurt people any more than what we've already got. Um, I forget. That's true. I I forget who I was talking to, man. I really need to write this down because it's fascinating, but uh, uh, there is a international insurance uh, the company that basically where they go into developing countries, they look, uh, they need to get a certain density of fast food restaurants per capita. And then it's worthwhile for them to go in and start offering life insurance because people are going to uh, health insurance. I, I forget what it was. I, I need to, to get my facts straight on this, but it was basically they go offer insurance on the heels of people getting, um, uh, uh, access to a, a certain density of fast food restaurants because they know that diabetes, oh, they, this is what it was. It, it, it's not insurance. It's um, a, a, a expansion of diabetes medications is what it was. Wow. They will go actively start marketing that to the medical community there because prior to that, if people are still eating, although maybe not paleo, but just more of a traditional food system, the number of diabetics is so small, there's no point in even devoting effort to that location in marketing these, these pharmaceuticals. But once you hit a certain critical threshold of uh, uh, fast food restaurants in the scene, then it's worthwhile to go market these things to them. And so this is one of the things that, that is really perplexing to me. I, I think that Lane had some, some solid points that, you know, uh, uh, the most important diet for somebody to follow is the diet that they're going to stick to and not everybody will necessarily stick with low carb. I think he had some very good things to say about that. Um, he had an interesting observation, which was that, you know, when people try to lose weight and, and maybe they're successful, but then they, they uh, slide back, which is kind of the norm. Each time they slide back, they tend to get worse and worse metabolically. Like they, they, it's harder to lose weight in the future. It's easier to gain more weight uh, subsequent to that process. So I think it does, you know, beg the question: like, okay, we should be careful in how we approach all that stuff. But then, to the point that you've kind of alluded to multiple times, um, anybody that's got their eyes open around healthcare costs and kind of diabetes-related costs, depending on what scenario you're talking about, like self-insured captive small businesses that are picking up the the nut for healthcare, many of them have maybe an eight to 12 year window before they're going to be bankrupt from diabetes related costs. Mm-hmm. The government at large and kind of our healthcare system at large in the United States, 15, 20 years and diabetes alone is going to cripple our economy. And that's not even doing the knock-on issues that we know within diabetes, like Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, dementia, follow on the heels of that. And as expensive as it is to deal with diabetes-related issues, you can medicate these folks and have them basically motor along on their own. With neurodegenerative diseases, people require 24-7 nursing care. Yeah, that When, when that tsunami hits, like it is... I mean, we are not going to know what to do with that stuff. And these numbers come from very, like, mainstream, orthodox, nonpartisan places like the Congressional Budget Office. And so when you have people like Lane Lane Norton, who are very, very smart, but they seem completely disinterested in this bigger picture, you know, I mean, props to him. He's kind of found a niche in this kind of fitness, bodybuilding, powerlifting scene, and that's largely who he caters to. But there was... 
there seems to be no real interest in pushing this stuff out to the bigger picture. Maybe you could argue against that because he was talking about find the right diet for the right person and not there's not a one size fits all approach, which I, I fully agree, but there, there just seemed to be um, a general disinterest in kind of like the, the bigger health question. That was kind of a concern for me. It was really fascinating that probably 10 times in the course of that discussion, he made allusions to the fact that he's got something weird going on with his guts. Like the dude's got like ulcerative colitis or Crohn's or gluten intolerance or ciliate. Like he has something fucking funky going on with his nether regions. That's going to pop up in a pretty profound way. There's a, a really a cool dude in the, in this scene, Bobby Maximus. He's uh, has run uh, Jim Jones with Mark Twight for years and he used to be pretty critical of kind of the paleo scene and made fun of, of uh, uh, gluten-free and stuff like that. And then he almost died from ulcerative colitis. Wow. And, and uh, it was a gluten-free, low-carb, bordering on keto paleo diet that basically saved his life. And he kind of reached out to me and he's like, hey, man, you've been, you've been fighting the good fight for a long time. And I was wrong. You know, and I, I see that potentially happening with Lane at some point because there's clearly something going on with his his guts that are a wee bit amiss. But it was really interesting to me that when Dom was talking about stuff, he not only was he talking about fat loss, he was talking about health issues at large. Exactly. And Lane, it was fat loss and body composition. That was it. And this whole concept of kind of health, which health is kind of a nebulous thing to pin down, but um, you know, uh, uh, gut-related issues, systemic inflammatory issues, autoimmune issues, those things don't appear to be remotely on Lane's radar. He just really doesn't care about it. And if he doesn't, that's fine. But um, these are some really, you know, big, important, compelling things, at, at least in my opinion, they are. And there, there was one thing that was really perplexing to me. Um, at one point in the discussion, Lane said that his PI, his, his the guy that was uh, basically running his his PhD program um, uh, just beat into him. All of these questions need to be run through the lens of evolutionary biology. Like none, none of this makes sense without evolutionary biology. And so Lane's like evolution, evolution, evolution. But then he turned around and he said, this whole paleo diet concept is ridiculous because, and he, and he kind of laid this thing out. And so that that's, if I am ever, ever able to get Lane on my podcast, that would be something I'd be, it, how do you square these two things? You know, how, is looking at an ancestral diet just as a starting place, you know, with an assumption that there may be foods that are immunogenic, it, you know, to some people, grains, legumes, dairy, maybe nightshades are, are some of these uh, potentially problematic foods from an immunogenic standpoint. And then also glycemic load, like uh, different people have remarkably different um, responses to a given, uh, a, you know, aliquot of carbohydrate, both in amount and type. And that was some of the work that came out of the Weizmann Institute in Israel, where they, you know, the personalized glycemic response work, where some people would eat 50 grams of, of carbohydrate from rice, and literally their blood sugar, it looked like they drank water, it barely even went up. And then other people, they would be in nearly diabetic blood sugar levels. Yeah. And so there's, there is just a massive variation within that. And I, I didn't... Um, as much as Lane was talking about, you know, there, there's no one size fits all approach. At the same time, he he seemed to have a lot of, to me, kind of blind alleys around this stuff, like it, uh, just purely focusing on the kind of caloric input output story, um, not really thinking about the 
the food quality piece. But then, it, you know, to his defense, there are elements out in the, particularly the low carb and keto scene that will swear up and down that so long as you keep insulin low, it doesn't matter how much fat you eat, you can't gain body fat. And that's just not true. Like we, we right. see that play out all the time. So there is kind of a nutty um, sub fringe of the, the low carb keto scene that Lane is kind of going to war with on there, but then he's largely missing all these other, you know, kind of opportunities. And I know I'm kind of bouncing around, but one of the things that, that has made me a little crazy, like they will make fun of these things like gluten intolerance and nightshade, uh, you know, potential reactivity and whatnot. Uh, one of the prime constituents in tomatoes is alpha tomatin, and this is used as an adjuvant in vaccines. And adjuvants are used to elicit an immune response. Now, this doesn't, this isn't proof that tomatoes are problematic for everybody. And I would never even claim that tomatoes are problematic for everybody. Funny enough, I'm one of the people that can eat nightshades and they don't really seem to bother me. And I seem to be the canary in the coal mine. Like everything else bothers me, but that but that doesn't. Yeah. But I've never once seen anyone like Lane or Alan Alan Aragon or any of these other people when they're dismissing like this nightshade if, issue. If they're such rock solid researchers, how did they miss the fact that constituents in these foods are used as immune stimulating adjuvants in vaccines? Right. Now, again, that's not proof of anything, but if you've got something that is used to enhance an immune response to produce antibodies to a foreign particle, man, we, we don't have a, a very slippery slope to jump on that like well what if that that uh, at that same adjuvant that's found in food what if that created a haptin a, a, a complex between a different food particle or even a particle within the individual's body and it elicits immune response we you're, you're basically creating the same scenario uh, that we are trying to produce with a vaccine and that we know occurs under autoimmune conditions. Not once have I seen any of these people mention, oh, you, you know, to, to their credit, the paleo people are crazy. This autoimmune stuff is kind of nutty. But yeah, tomatoes can be used for eliciting uh, an immune response, like constituents out of tomatoes. I've never once seen any of these people mention that. And that, that seems like they're, they have to willfully avoid that or they're not quite the rock star researchers that they play themselves up to be well the big issue kind of one or the other yeah i think what it is is there the common thread i saw throughout these podcasts was this idea that everyone is optimizing that everyone's like justin and rob it's okay what's the best thing for our performance they're forgetting that even if let's say my gut can handle certain foods that doesn't mean somebody on day one who's drinking 11 pepsis a day can handle the same foods that I can handle. So it's this idea, instead of looking at it from body composition, physique, like we talked about earlier, skinny jeans, the promise of skinny jeans, we have to understand that food selection is important when you start looking at clients as sick instead of fat. Right. You know what I mean? Right. So if we look at the health of the gut, it's so important. If somebody has been dealing with an undiagnosed gluten sensitivity or something like that, or a problem with nightshades, and they've never known because, and a lot of these high performance people, well, they'll just motor along. Like you talked about the guy with ulcerative uh, colitis. My MMA fighter had that for the past 16 years right. and was still training four hours a day. And she's like, well, I just deal with blood in my stool. You know, and like George St. Pierre had yeah. ulcerative colitis. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, his last podcast with Joe was was tremendous. I've been sharing that with every MMA fighter that talks to me. I'm like, can you please listen to, jo- to, to George talk about his diet? Like, it is it's so important. And I want the reason I brought up this lane thing, and yeah, his his alluding to having these bathroom issues is I know that that's something that you've dealt with in the past. And that's particularly why I want to talk to you about this. It was the same way that Joe was a bit hard on Michaela Peterson, where she's like, hey, some people just don't have the energy to go work out. And he's like, that's bullshit. It's not bullshit if you're dealing with a tremendous autoimmune condition. So can you just share a little bit about like what you went through? And 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 again, you've had incredibly popular articles like how to keep feces out of the bloodstream that Tim right. shared and all that. Like, let's just touch on this whole autoimmune thing. What What's going on there? Yeah, you know, so I think I always had some degree of gut issues and some degree of kind of like, you know, carbon tolerance. Like most of my childhood and young adult life, like I looking back, I just didn't feel that good. I didn't know what feeling good meant because I didn't have anything to compare, but it would, you know, it'd be a little better, it'd be a little worse. Um, I, we and gluten containing items. And I think that it bothered me at kind of a low level, but then I caught Giardia while I was in Mexico on a trip. And after that, that changed everything. Like my guts have never been the same. They're much, much better than what they've, they've honestly ever been in, in history and remind me to touch on one of the things that I've done of late, it, it involves a modium, okay. like the anti-diarrheal drug. So just remind me to talk about that at, at some sure. point. But, so, you know, I kept tinkering with my diet and I, I, uh, uh, I shifted from, you know, kind of bodybuilder, high carb, low fat, high protein type deal into a vegan or vegetarian and then vegan type diet. I also moved to a place that had no sun I was in a graduate program under huge stress. So there's a looking back, there was a ton of different factors. I was trying to sleep three hours a night. I got no sun on my person. I'm really, really sensitive to light deprivation. And so in the, you know, 15 years ago, I would have hung all of my problems of ulcerative colitis on a vegan diet. It was not just a vegan diet. Had I moved to Arizona and eating a vegan diet, maybe I could have motored through it for a while. I don't think it was ever going to be optimal for me, but it would not have crushed me in the same way. The lack of sunlight, the, you know, um, burning the candle at both ends. But I eventually, so I walk around about between 165 and 175, pretty lean, pretty muscular. Um, when I competed in powerlifting, it was usually at the, the 181 weight class. This, it, at my low ebb with ulcerative colitis, I was 130 pounds. Wow. So I basically lost, and, and there's some pictures floating around of me at that point. I mean, I look emaciated because I was, my, my nails were splitting and falling out. My hair was falling out. My gums were bleeding. I mean, I was a disaster and I had gone everywhere in vegan land, like the Georgia Shawa Macrobiotic Institute. I was a student at a naturopathy school. I mean, I had the best of the best. And, you know, for three years, it was like, oh, you're going through a healing crisis. You're going through a healing crisis. And again, there were multiple factors here. Genetically, I'm predisposed to celiac. Like my 23andMe is crystal clear on that. My mom had celiac. I got exposed to this gut pathogen, which clearly flipped things in a pretty negative direction. I was sleeping very poorly. I was maxing myself out and I was under nutrition. And so there was kind of a perfect storm of things that came together and took me down. But I mean, I was so sick, it, it, you know, in my, my mid to late 20s that I, I, if I died at that point, it would have been kind of a, a blessing because I was wow. so depressed and miserable and, and sick. And that was part of what made me fairly, you know, 
potent zealot when I figured out this stuff and got so much better. I'm like, oh my God, like this could really save somebody's life and, and dramatically improve it. But, you know, I, I went from a state powerlifting champion to um, being so sick that I could barely function. Like, I, I'm not entirely sure why I didn't just like tap out and like try to go on a, a some sort of disability. Like I, I had diagnosed depression that was into the severe range, like constant fixation on death and, and, uh, uh, felt terrible thoughts of suicide. I mean, that, that was my every moment fixation for a couple of years. So, I mean, I, I was probably bad enough that they could have been like, yeah, we could probably stick you in a, a you know, low security setting and medicate you. <laughs> but I just kept, kept motoring on and, and, you know, changing my diet um, learning about circadian biology and sleeping and, and taking care of myself has changed everything. So I've, I really have been at all ends of that spectrum. And then it, folks may or may not know, but my wife and I co-founded the first and fourth CrossFit affiliate gyms in the world. And so we've been able to work with just a ton of people under a lot of different circumstances. And we've seen where, you know, in general, a quality-based approach to food just works in so so wonderfully. You know, uh, focusing mainly on whole unprocessed foods and then getting more granular as to immunogenic properties and then also the potential of, of you know, getting things dialed in for the appropriate glycemic response. Like, that's just been magic for people. And, and we, you know, we made a lot of mistakes, but we've also learned a lot along the way. So, yeah, I, I feel like I have a fair amount of experience in that that whole story. And to your point, there are far more people motoring around that are are legitimately sick, mm. but because everybody's sick, it's assumed to be normal. Exactly. The new normal. Yeah. Like uh, lab values on a host of things from testosterone and estrogen levels keep getting modified. Inflammatory markers keep getting modified. What's normal for white blood cell count keeps getting modified. And, you know, that's based off of the population that's coming in the door, but it, it's possibly a, a very bad decision. Maybe we should largely stick with the blood values that we had from the 1940s, 1950s, because arguably we had a much healthier population and we should be doing everything we can with diet and lifestyle to get people back to those numbers and not just allow these goalposts to slide in such a way that it, like there was just a modification of, um, uh, blood sugar targets with regards to A1C, and they were they were relaxed remarkably. Like the the diagnostic criteria for being type two diabetic with A1C is uh, six point five or above, and they relax that they being the the American Diabetes Association, they basically advocated for those no the numbers being relaxed such that anything between seven and eight on A1C is considered okay because they're really trying to avoid hypoglycemic events. That's insane. But we know without a doubt that each, you know, one point increase on that A1C dramatically increases morbidity and mortality. And so what they're doing is they're normalizing a state that is already incredibly problematic. And we, we tend to only see people can develop insulin resistance for years, possibly even decades, before we see an increase in blood sugar. Blood sugar starts increasing when the pancreatic beta cells are effectively failing, they're dying. And this is where the blood sugar starts going up. 
So by the time we use that diagnostic criteria of elevated A1C to start diagnosing and treating people, the house is already fully on fire, yeah. if not ready to burn down. You know, And then not only did they take this already a problematic value that, that shows that the, the pancreas is already in, in really rapid decline, they've relaxed the treatment standards that, that we're playing to um, you, you know, to quote, avoid hypoglycemia, but that's because they tend to recommend a high carb diet and then just try to, to compensate with that with fast acting insulin, which is the, the metabolic equivalent of driving a, a, a car, a, a rear wheel drive pickup truck on an icy road with bald tires. Like yeah. it, it just <laughs> doesn't work. Well, that's the thing. It, it feels like lunacy at this point. That's where I'm really losing. I mean, you talked about it, speaking of the lab tests and, and ranges, reference ranges, all that stuff. Um, when you talk to Anthony J from Estro Generation, where he was talking about they're like proposing lowering the age of normal puberty. Right. Because so many kids are hitting like early puberty now. And then you have, if the only marker we're using for metabolic health in the, in the mainstream medical is BMI, well, now you have 10 to 15% of lean individuals walking around with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Right. What are we supposed to do with these things? Which is why it blows my mind why there's all these medical treatments and all these products and supplements and people will go out and spend $50 on a bottle of capsules extracted from some fruit found deep in the rainforest that's supposed to burn fat. And then you have a guy like Rob Wolf comes out and says, hey, maybe you should try eating whole foods. And all of a sudden, you're a crazy person. Right, right. How have we gotten to this point? Is it, is it and I can't figure out, I, I, you've got to talk to a lot of higher level academics than I have in my career. So it's a genuine question. Like, I'm not trying to be a smart ass, but like, is it, is it just a matter of ego that they won't change their mind and just say, hey, maybe we got this whole thing wrong? Or is it that they're just completely disconnected from the average Joes? Like, do you have any insight on that? Man, I mean, the, the unfortunate thing about this is um, history doesn't bode well for innovators, particularly in the medical <laughs> scene. So there, there was this guy, Ignaz uh, Semmelweis, a Hungarian physician, um, I, I want to say late 1800s. So right pre like Koch's postulate and like the, uh, you know, the idea of like the germ theory of, of disease, um, there was... This was still a time where they would attribute different diseases to like miasmas, like bad gas or something like that. You know, there was a thought that there might be something transmissible from person to person, but the notion that there were these tiny microorganisms, single cell or even less than a cell in the case of viruses, that just wasn't on folks' radar. But Semmelweis was, he was a physician and the hospital that he worked in, he was observing that women who had their children literally on the street, their uh, rate of infant mortality was a tiny fraction, the rate of infant mortality of, of the more elite class women who had their children in a hospital. Hmm. It was like, wow, that's really interesting. You know, the, the, you would think that more advanced medical care would be better. And it, it was absolutely not the case. This was an early example of some, some well-utilized epidemiology and some basic statistical research to try to suss some stuff out. Like he just started tracking some numbers and doing a little bit of, of what would eventually lead into more modern statistics. But what he noticed was that the same doctors that would deliver babies 
this was in the time when we were just starting to learn anatomy and physiology. And so these doctors would spend a ton of time back in the morgue cutting up cadavers to learn about the anatomy. And these folks would go right from working on a, a ripe cadaver to a mom delivering a baby and not wash their hands or do anything in between. Wow. And he suggested, and not only did he, he suggested that if these individuals washed their hands with a dilute bleach solution between doing the autopsy and the childbirth, that this would reduce the infant mortality rate. And they tested it and he proved it to be true. Mm. Like he, he got some, some numbers on this. And when he presented this to his peers at large, they, they, the way that they responded, it was like he was suggesting that they should go and eat these babies. Wow. Like he, I mean, the vitriol and the personal <laughs> attacks. And I mean, the internet didn't exist then. So this stuff had to happen via correspondence letter and, and you know, meetings and all this stuff. But I mean, he was presented as a crackpot and, and like he would, like there was evil in this man for suggesting that their current standard of practice, standard of care was flawed. And he ended up going crazy, being institutionalized, dying in an institution, maybe 20 years after his death, then we developed the germ theory of disease. And oh, well, that that crazy guy, Semmelweis, his recommendation to wash your hands between autopsy and childbirth was actually super well-founded. But it was nearly 50 years before we, we you know, made any headway on that. Uh, there was a researcher, I'm blanking on his name, but the, the guy that um, put together a lot of pieces with regards to uh, uh, ulcers, peptic ulcers. Mm -hmm. And he suggested that these things were not caused by stress or coffee or anything else, but by a bacterial infection, uh, H. pylori. Yeah. And again, the, the community, the medical community at large just railed against this guy. And so what this guy did was he infected himself with H. pylori. He actually did the whole Koch's postulate process of infection, removal, reinfection, and it, it, it was beautiful. And so he did this. He infected himself with H. pylori. He, he, he was scoped first, no ulcer, uh, no ulcer, infected mm -hmm. himself with H. pylori, verified that his gut was infected with H. pylori, developed an ulcer, took a round of biotics, was screened for H. pylori, couldn't find it, and the ulcer went away, and then he reinfected himself and did this whole thing. And then it was like, okay, yeah, this, guy's, this guy's great. I, I think he may have gotten a Nobel Prize in medicine for that. Wow. And then there's one final example. I don't want to like beat this thing to death, but... Uh, there was a, a gosh, I'm, I'm blanking on these guys' names, but um, he found an association between low folate intake and neural tube defects in, in uh, developing fetuses. Mm -hmm. So he suggested that these these uh, moms should pay particular attention to consuming more more folate, more like green vegetables and meat and stuff like that. Again, the guy was railed against. I mean, he was suggesting that maybe eating some more nutrient dense foods would reduce neural tube defects. And now it, it, within science, you would hope that people, you know, would, now there's a lot of things that are put forward that are wrong. So we don't just willy nilly jump in and say that everything's right. But it's like, that's an interesting idea. Let's test that. Instead of the, the knee jerk response, even within academia is to just attack these people. And Max Planck had a, a, a statement, something, the effect that science progresses one funeral at a time. Yeah. You know, we just wait for the old guard to die off and then the new generation isn't as encumbered with, um, with these problems, but it, it's, uh, it is a sad state of affairs because when you look at the history of medical inter 
innovation in particular, it's very slow. It's very contentious. There's definitely a lot of ego, but it, you know, the, the medical process itself is a, a somewhat religious, you know, kind of institution. They're, they're kind of the, the priesthood of our, our modern era. And this is why I've really advocated that um, the monopoly of the American Medical Association should be broken into like five, six, 10 different entities. And it's like the vegans have something, the evolutionary biologists people have something, the homeopaths have like mm. get all these things kind of separated and then let them compete. And then within that competition, we'll see who like people will figure out both ways to motivate people, you know, let, let these systems work both with the way that they structure insurance reimbursements and, and whatnot and the way they charge people, the way they incentivize the process and what they do on the treatments. And you're going to very quickly find a, uh, almost like a, a, a UFC ultimate fighting challenge. Like these, these approaches are going to compete yeah. and it's like, we're going to very quickly see which one of them uh, has some dominance in this scene. But instead what we're, we're stuck with is this um, kind of priest class of researchers and medical professionals that are in a monopolistic scenario. And it's the, the, the innovation goes very, very slowly. And, and so I've always, you know, when people say, well, what do we do about this? We really should have multiple kind of, there should be five or 10 American medical associations competing with, against one another. It's like, okay, you guys treat cancer. You guys treat mm. autoimmune disease. You guys treat cardiovascular disease. How do you do it? And, and let these people can compete. And, and uh, uh, also I think that what we would discover is that there is nuance and variation. Like if you're just pushing only a low carb diet for the uh, addressing like uh, cardiovascular disease, you're going to pretty quickly discover that some people don't do well with, with high levels of saturated fat in the diet. Their lipoproteins go sideways and you need a different approach for them. But right now the whole process is so sluggish and, and uh, uh, resistant to change. And there's really no powerful incentive for, for a group to get this very, very right because yeah. there's no one competing in, against them. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too, because I mean, I'm one of those people. It's like, I could do low carb, moderate fat, adequate protein and sit at 10, 11% body fat. And if a lot of that fat's coming from saturated fats, like my LDLP will be 2,600. It's right. like off the chart. You introduced me to, to William Cromwell and he's just like, yeah. whoa, we got to figure this thing. Out. Wait a second. There's right. something genetic at play. But what's scary about all this and the reason why I ask about the ego and why the resistance to change in those things is because now with the stories that you tell, we didn't, like you said, we didn't have the internet now. Now we do. So the issue is what scares me is, dude, I'm a musician. You know, like I stumbled into this thing and I educated myself and I wanted to figure it out for myself and my family had a personal tragedy that I wanted to, to try to help with in any way I could. But what's happening is this giant pendulum swing that makes me nervous is I'll have people that come to me as a client and they haven't been, they've been 300 pounds for four decades. And I help them lose 60, 70 pounds. Well, now they are all of a sudden I'm getting emails with full blown medical questions. And I'm like, hey, 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 you need to understand who I am and what my limitations are. But the problem is now there's this tremendous distrust of the medical community. Mm -hmm. And that's not that can be very problematic in its own right, where I don't want I don't want people coming to me for full blown medical issues. But I get it. I get this little light bulb moment that has switched for them. Well, Justin had me make lifestyle changes. I don't trust my doctor anymore. 
And that's really dangerous too. And I, I don't know why they can't see that, you know? It, it, it's interesting, and I don't want to drag this too far out in the weeds, but a, a recent Joe Rogan podcast, he had Eric Weinstein on there. He's uh, one of the main guys at, at Teal Capital, and um, they made this is an interesting thing. So, like, kind of more mainstream medicine, mainstream media. Um, it almost reminds me of these old Walt Disney type things where it's like science better than nature, you know, and, yeah. and very like scripted and stiff and not alive. And the funny thing about the, the whole science better than nature is science studies nature. You're never going to improve upon nature. You're you right. <laughs> exactly. Nature's got a few more years, a few more CPU cycles of experimenting with this stuff. Than you right, know. right. But, you know, like mainstream media, mainstream medicine, it's, it's all about like controlling power, controlling messaging. And there's some wacky stuff with it. But what's interesting is outlets like Tim Ferriss, like Joe Rogan. I mean, my podcast is very modest, but it's got, I think, 22 million total downloads. Like it, it's still, Whoa. you know, each episode has 100, 150,000 downloads, something like that um, within the first week. That's what a small cable news network used to do, yes. you know, like, it, it, you know, so people are able to really go out and compare notes. And what's really fascinating is the more established entities, it, it's kind of like when um, the whole thing with Napster happened and like file sharing and they tried to tried to control, you, you know, the, the flow of that information, you know, music and you being a musician, you'd probably be even more, more attuned to this, but they couldn't do it. At the end of the day, then they develop this BitTorrent thing where it's like, oh, we're only taking a one millionth of a second slice out of this person's file, and then one millionth out of that one, and then you string them all together, and all of a sudden, you've, you've got the whole piece. So that, that innovation and truth really, um, it's very, very difficult to, to ratchet down on that. And what it ends up doing when you aren't truthful with people, the way that both mainstream media and um, uh, uh, medical circles have been is that you lose trust and then you yes. start losing market share. And to your point, I, I think the danger there and the thing that they've always been worried about is like, well, charlatans are, are going to take this thing over. And it's like, well, when we look at the research you guys have been passing by, like uh, uh, Ioannidis, you know, he, he did that, that piece um, years ago suggesting upwards of 80% of, of medical research is non-replicatable, which means that it's fake. Yeah. So if that's the case, then why should we trust those people? Why is the goofy internet personality any more or less credit? If you don't have a, a bullet hole, just got hit by a bus, et cetera, you know, some sort of acute issue, you're, it, it seems as credible to go talk, you know, follow some guru on the internet. And particularly if they're like, well, if you do this, this, and this, then you'll lose weight and you'll feel better. And if you lose weight and feel better and your doctor was never able to help you do that, then all of a sudden you have an experience that, that so supersedes what, you know, the experience that you get from your mainstream medical provider. So they've, um, yeah, the way the system has been set up, they've, uh, it, the, the current, kind of orthodoxy is in a very precarious position. And I, I, you know, like the old guard media, New York times, all that stuff, they're all trying to figure out how to pivot on this stuff because one person who's very um, charismatic and has a passion for a topic 
they can become the world expert. Uh, I have a, a friend who was very high up the food chain at, at Cal Fire, and they ceased getting um, their their uh, forest fire data from their 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 in-house circles because there was one guy who was an engineer who developed a website that the information that he put up on the fires was days ahead of what the Cal Fire folks had. So they just literally, and they got in trouble for abandoning that, but they're like, when we listen to your advice, we're completely off when we listen to his advice. So it had to become this thing where it's like, well, you got to check this first and then you kind of do whatever you want. And so that was a really interesting example of kind of like a citizen scientist that got in and was just kind of like, and he had algorithms for like a, a mechanical Turk to go out and like sift the internet and, you know, get information and then populate it into the uh, charts and graphs and everything. And the thing was updated in real time. Yeah. And there was nothing like that within, you know, the, the kind of Cal fire orthodoxy. So that's a, there's lots and lots of examples like that where somebody takes a passion and applies it to a given topic and they become a far better expert on it than, you know, like the, the mainstream academic circles. We have the time to learn too, because we're not taking 30 patients a day or whatever. Right. And it's just that it's, it's who gets results. The same thing with this fire example. It's like you, your Instagram story today had a ridiculously awesome keto gains transformation. Right. And you go to my webpage, we're forced to play this internet marketer game as well. So you go to my webpage, there's a, there's a page that says transformations and you can scroll endlessly of people that don't fit in their clothes anymore. It's like, Hey man, right. You know, the results are there. So Speaking of which, because of obviously I, ra- I, I, I railed on the podcast for a little bit and all that, but what having you here, I really kind of want to think of this as like the podcast that should have been type thing, because I think a lot of people turn to those podcasts, average everyday people, not biochemists, turn to those podcasts looking for answers. And my hope for today's episode is to give them some answers, particularly for this fat loss thing. And you alluded to this earlier, but for me, What it was, I've been in this kind of paleo diet for maybe seven years now, but it was only until um, I was so excited a couple months ago because you shared the work of Dr. Ted Naiman, and Mm -hmm. I fell in love with his Instagram because I was like, yes, yes, I have something to share for people because what it really was for me was I did the keto thing. My, My niece was born having 300 seizures a day, and that's where I learned about keto was like for an actual therapeutic modality, like mm-hmm. what it was created mm-hmm. for. So I was doing blood draws and doing keto and all this stuff, right? And I just couldn't break, even as a, as a, as a power lifter, as a crossfitter, jujitsu, all these things, I couldn't break that like 13 to 15% body fat area until I discovered this concept of separating macronutrients into essentially two macros, energy and non-energy, and now I can maintain, you know, 11, 12% body fat, whatever effortlessly. So I really want to get into this with you because you're, you know, much more about it than I do. Um, the idea of protein, the protein leveraging hypothesis and how well this works for fat loss in particular. Yeah, it, it's interesting because we've gone through multiple cycles of demonizing different macronutrients, you know, so like fat was very demonized. And part of that was because we shifted out uh, like lard and butter in favor of hydrogenated vegetable oils. And that was a problem. And so there was a battle there. And then, you know, from, from Atkins on forward, um, carbohydrates in various capacities have have been kind of demonized. And then more recently, 
protein's been demonized. And the funny thing about this is you can find these very fascinating camps. Um, the real extreme vegans, or just the kind of vegans in general, tend to be kind of protein phobic. But you have like the 30 bananas a day vegan, you know, like raw. Yeah. Then you have camps within keto land that recommend protein intakes that are lower than what you get from eating 30 bananas a day. Wow. So if you, if you eat 30 bananas a day, you get about 40 grams of protein. Now it's not complete proteins and all this type of stuff, but sure. you get about 40 grams of protein. There are doctors, dietitians, just internet personalities that are in the keto scene that recommend for a male my size, 30 grams of protein a day at, at infinitum. And now, so it's really interesting, and they're they're terrified of these things like mTOR and IGF one and, and and all this stuff. And, but it's fascinating that protein has become this thing that is super you know railed against, whether it's vegan or whether it's it's even elements within the keto scene. And what this protein leverage hypothesis puts forward is this idea that for virtually all organisms that creep crawl, move to get the, you know, that they don't use photosynthesis or, or something like that to, to, you know, sustain themselves that whether you're talking about a cow that's eating grass and clover or more of a carnivorous or omnivorous animal in general, when you look at the food sources that that animal exploits, if it is higher protein content foods, it generally is also higher nutrient density foods. Yes. And so there are mechanisms within the body that largely track it, it, our, our body has a sense of, of tracking overall caloric intake, but it also has a way of tracking basically protein intake as, as a baseline. So the, the body is both looking at protein as a, as an input because it's giving a, an overall kind of like macro view of the total nutritional intake for the, for the critter. And then also in the background, it's looking at total caloric load. And it's generally using like fat mass and leptin and ghrelin and stuff like that to kind of manage these things. But it's kind of an input-output management system. And then it's also looking at the vitamins, minerals, and micronutrients that would come along for the ride. And again, whether we're talking about herbivores or carnivores, in general, things that are higher in protein tend to have a higher nutrient density. And so you generally don't need to eat as much. And so within primates that have been studied in the story, when these primates, whether they're frugivorous or more of like a fermentive kind of gut bacteria kind of scenario, when these primates eat low protein diets, they eat more calories overall mm. because they're effectively trying to hit that protein minimum so that they hit a nutritional minimum. Because their their body knows that if they're not getting that that protein allotment, that they're they will be deficient in some sort of vitamin, mineral, micronutrient, or something like that. But whereas conversely, if they do pretty well on the the protein intake, then the the satiety signals tend to get fired rather quickly, and you, you will very closely match you know input and, and output. And so what we find is whether the individual is eating high carb or low carb. If the protein isn't adequate, the individual will have a tendency to overeat either the carbs or the fat or the fat-carb combo. And, and right. so that's where the protein leverage hypothesis really, really comes in and is a, a very powerful. And it, it, it clears up a lot of this 
high carb versus low carb stuff. If you overlay a little bit of genetic individuality and like gut microbiota, you know, to help explain some of the, the individual responses to glycemic input, and then overlay that with this protein leverage hypothesis, you end up clearing up a lot of the confusion. Yeah, it's just the idea of, you know, forget about the macronutrient ratio, let's say, is it high fat, is it low fat, et cetera. It's the idea of eating whole foods and then protein satiety. And that's that's what it was for me when I finally broke that little body fat deal that I was that I was struggling with was I just literally had to stop drinking fat and adding MCT oil to right. every meal. It was it was that simple. Right. And then it be, it became effortless. Right. You know? So I wish that people just could get a better understanding of that. But then you have the issue of fear. There's this fear-based thing. Like I had to do it. I do this weekly Facebook live um, for my audience and I had to do an entire 90 minute presentation because one of the first questions I get is like, oh, well, you're telling me to all, eat all this protein. My kidneys are going to fail. Right. And I'm like, oh, now we have to unpack that. And then there's the red right. causes cancer. And just there's so much nonsense that it's hard to convince people to eat all that meat, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And this is like, before we started recording, I, I mentioned that the, the vegan scene kind of has a little bit of an asymmetric warfare process going on where they will just say red meat causes cancer. Everybody right. knows that. And it sounds very credible. And association studies have been presented as causal studies. Um, they're not well vetted for, you know, the fact that these are like diet recollection questionnaires and stuff like that. And so right. there's so many problems. But they'll say things like, red meat causes cancer. High protein intake will damage your kidneys. Um, uh, uh, cows are going to destroy the environment, you know? And these are soundbite statements that require a PhD dissertation to unpack them. Yeah. You know, and, and so there's really a, a remarkable asymmetric warfare that's going on there where um, these kind of more vegan-leaning folks are... are uh, able to make some really pretty specious and, and wild claims, but they sound very credible. Um, there is a lot of the orthodox mainstream that kind of embraces them. Um, there's a whole political divide that usually delineates these whole these things. So it's very easy to slide into these, these uh, camps because it, it tends to go along with a certain kind of political orientation. And so it's, um, it's really fascinating. Like the UK just uh, proposed, and it was a, a vegan researcher backed by a, a, a vegan-funded uh, research outlet that recommended that the UK enact a, a meat tax. Mm -hmm. And what's fascinating about this is that when you really dig into the data, the notion that it's going to save any lives is completely dubious. I mean, so incredibly dubious. But what it will absolutely do, getting back to this nutrient density story, it's going to reduce the protein intake that people already are probably short on, which is going to stimulate them to eat more of these problematic processed foods. And the ironic thing is the people that will be disproportionately impacted by this are the poor and minorities who are already Absolutely. not in a position to eat these highly nutrient-dense foods. Yeah, And I, I did a, a brief post on my, my Facebook page with this the other day, but over the last century, the, the average IQ has – IQ is kind of a dodgy thing because they, they take the, the, the um, general intelligence at large and, and create a bell curve. And, and, but what, what they generally rank as intelligence has increased remarkably in the last 100 years, and they attribute most of this 
to improve dietary practices, like just preventing iodine deficiency in children and moms is attributable to like a 10 point increase in IQ. Wow. And, and so it's really huge. And for the first time in history, the United States is seeing a decrease in average IQ because our, our, our dietary practices are so poor. So the first time in history, we're, we're getting both shorter and arguably dumber. And the, the, <laughs> the most nutrient-dense foods, the most likely to tick the boxes like EPA, DHA, iodine, vitamin D, these things that are critical for neurological development come, tend to come from these animal product sources. And we're suggesting that we're going to make them even less accessible for the people who are farthest down the socioeconomic ladder. And so that, that is like, you know, with all this um, discussion around like equality and, and just all the stuff, which can get people into fistfights immediately, but folks are suggesting that we're going to make these most nutrient dense foods even more expensive, which is going, is that going to affect an upper middle class or, or wealthy family? No, not at all. They're going to absorb that. But will that alter the dietary practices of a, a, a low-income family, somebody that's living at the margin? Hell yes, it's going to modify dietary practices. Yeah, man. Yeah. Well, and that's where you get into, uh, you know, if we had this conversation at family dinner the other day, because my whole family is kind of on board with living the same way that I do, but it's like, it's hard at that point when you start examining the evidence to not get a little tinfoil hat about this shit. You're like, wait a minute, what what are we trying to do here? This is kind of crazy because I think you and I talked about this a couple of years ago at Paleo FX. We, we touched on this and Mark Hyman's been talking about it recently. And I was like, whoa, because in the politically correct world, you got to be really careful about this stuff. But you th- how do you think nutrition impacts crime rates? Right. You know, it's like you have these the, the lowest income neighborhoods where you might have a 14 year old kid who's never eaten a green vegetable in his life. And he's running around doing some stupid stuff that's going to get him in trouble. It's like, wait a minute here. We need to connect these dots. It's incredibly important. If, you, if your diet is soda, if you're a 12-year-old kid drinking 10 Dr. Peppers a day because it's cheap, because it's 99 cents at the grocery store or whatever, that's going to impact your brain in a significant way. So it's the, this whole foods idea. What people don't realize is if we're saying, hey, eat whole foods, what we're saying is eat more micronutrients. That's, yes. that's the argument, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, and it's a very contentious topic, but you know, the, the, the more vegan leaning scene, they will make the case that, you know, uh, fruits and vegetables are very, very nutrient dense. They, they're okay, but they, they honestly really pale in comparison to meat products, particularly on, on some like a folate deficiency early in life you don't come back from that. Like the neurological impairment that a child will experience from that is, is profound. And, and it, 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 you can never fix it. There's just a developmental window that will never be addressed. And the, it, it's, it's interesting. This gets really, really controversial. So you may or may not keep this, you may cut it, whatever. But um, uh, if you do a little poking around and you try to, it, you do some poking around, uh, Infant death, um, malnutrition, mm-hmm. and you poke around on that. Very, very rarely, even in the most junkiest of junk food diets, so long as there's some animal products in the diet of the mom and the baby, you don't see death from nutrient deficiency. But you do see that very, very occasionally. But in in uh, the vegan scene where uh, the mom's breast milk is so nutrient devoid, 
that the babies have died. The trying to feed the kids like a almond milk diet and stuff like that. The babies oh, died. Man. Now these are very isolated incidences. Um, they've happened in Europe. There have been a, some instances in the United States. But it's interesting. You would think that these very um, marginalized, at-risk populations, uh, you know, where like fast food restaurants are kind of, and corner markets are the mainstay for what what they can get food from, you don't see massive amounts of of like infant mortality from malnutrition. Now, and, and you probably see some other problems, but it's really interesting that even that very very poor diet, even just like you know, the, the processed meat is still nutrient dense enough to offset a bunch of these other problems. And again, this is a really controversial topic. And like the, the treatment that I gave it there is really insufficient. Like it deserves like a, probably a two hour long, you know, podcast with some slides, you know, you know, unplugging all that stuff, but it's interesting. And again, um, the, the kind of sexy, um, politically viable stories around our food and food systems really paint animal products in a very poor light. And it, if that was, if that's the truth, then okay, let's follow the truth. But if it's inaccurate, if this stuff is being painted in an inaccurate fashion, we may have some massive ecological consequences, economic consequences, social consequences for just getting this story wrong about the way that we're fundamentally uh, raising food and, and, you know, feeding ourselves. Yeah, for sure. The nutrient density thing too, is just something that, I mean, I forget about it. I think that, um, you know, lower income households forget about it too. It's like, I mean, you can go to the store and spend two bucks and get a big jug of chicken livers. <laughs> you know, it's like these, this organ meat thing too, if we're really going to focus on nutrient density, it's like, we're not saying that you got to eat three pounds of ground beef every day. Right. You know, there, there, there's extremes to all this stuff. It's like, if you really want to just focus on nutrient density, you could be a vegan and well, a vegan, except eat some organ meats, you know, four, eight, 12 grams, whatever of organ meats every day, or even like oysters, things like that, that people don't right. think about. Yeah. You know, yeah. For that nutrient dense piece. So speaking of the nutrient density too, another I've been dying to ask you about this, man. I actually sent you this question for one of your Robin Nikki Q and A's. I like sent it to you on Instagram, right? Because I'm I'm trying to get this piece of the puzzle just completely honed in and figured out. And that is total caloric intake. And it's tricky to me because so we've talked about nutrient density and the macronutrient ratio, protein leveraging, all these things, but it's total amount of food. So to give an example, I've never, not one time, have I had a female come to me looking for nutrition advice who is eating enough food. So I think everybody thinks that it's this overeating problem in America, but I, I mean, I have 250 pound women that are eating 700 calories because they're so desperate to lose weight. And I found it for myself. And the reason why I want to ask you specifically about this is because I think I live at a caloric deficit. And when I was in my heyday of powerlifting, I mean, really power, you know, 400 plus pound deadlift type stuff. I was reading your, this years ago now, reading your paleo troubleshooting guide and just doing the numbers on myself, 160 pound man for, for a power athlete. I needed like 3000 plus calories based on this, the, the, I think you had 19 to 21 calories per pound of body weight in, right. that, in that troubleshooting guide, right? Right. So can you kind of clear this up for me? Because I, I know, I mean, I train, my training sessions are not long. They're maybe 20 to 30 minutes, but between jujitsu and powerlifting and kettlebells and gymnastics rings work and all this stuff, I'm probably getting in eight sessions a week 
of, of some kind of physical activity that's pretty intense. I got this aura ring thing tracking the calories that I burn every day. And I'm like, whoa, right. my average caloric intake is like 18 to 1900 calories. And the end of the day, my aura rings like you burn 2700 calories. So it's like, it's really when you switch to this whole food thing, it can be pretty tough to get in the adequate number of calories. So am I in any kind of danger with this kind of caloric deficit game that I seem to be playing? Man, a, a lot of thoughts on that. Um, so maybe two years ago, before I started really hanging out with the keto gains guys, which you should have uh, Tyler and Luis on the show sometime. They're just amazing. I would love to, dude. Those guys are monsters. Yeah. Um, I would have attributed much more um, weight loss stalls to like hormonal imbalances and and uh, under-eating and down-regulating of, of metabolism and I started watching these guys and people would present that to them and they were like, bullshit, you're overeating somewhere. Hmm. Um, you may not be eating much here, but some way, somehow, somewhere. And man, they would dig and dig. And so I would watch it in their forums. They would share these email threads with me. By God, like they would break the person eventually. And the person's like, okay, yeah, so I binge eat every two days and it, it, I eat for six hours straight, you know, whatever. Yeah. But it, it, um, so almost never are people legitimately under eating. Now they may under eat for a period of time, but then they just don't record what they're really, what, what they're really eating. They binge eat. I mean, there's all these different things. And I would have, I would have never believed that I, I would have been much more on the like, Oh, maybe their thyroid's down regulating. And there is a little bit of that. Like there, there is a, a little bit of that. You, um, smartly planned, um, uh, fat loss usually should not be, the goal shouldn't be a t completely linear process. You maybe go like 10 or 12 days at a mild caloric deficit and then one or two days at maintenance, maybe even a hypercaloric day. And then, you know, kind of stair step a little bit so that, so mm -hmm. that we are switching things up a little bit, but there's, a reality that nobody came out of like concentration camps um, overweight. Nobody, right, right. Nobody experienced you know a down regulation of metabolism where they they retain body fat. They they just absolutely did not. And so this is the stuff that I would say just. It, in general, just people eat too damn much food. And it, mm. it, you know, when I look at my daily activity level. I sit on my duff a lot and then I'll go do jujitsu or I'll, I'll lift some weights or, or what have you. And so like, if I don't do a jujitsu day, my total caloric need is made. I mean, it, it's barely above my BMR. Like, it, yeah. Your basal metabolic rate is like keeping the lights on and alive laying in a hospital bed. Right. Well, I do so little outside of my, because I'll, I'll sit down and do work and I'll do some mobility and stuff, but it's very, very little activity my total caloric needs for a day might be like 20 to 21, 2200 calories, maybe. Mm -hmm. And then if I get an hour of jits, usually it's a lot of low level drilling, maybe, maybe some rolling. But if I do an hour to an hour and a half, more or less straight of jits, I might add another 500 to 700 calories on the day. Right. And that's it. Right. So if I'm only like, 21, 2200. And then if I do like two out an hour and a half to two hours of jujitsu, okay, maybe I'm bumping up against that 3000 calorie level, but it, it's, it's rare that I do that. I maybe get two days a week of, of jujitsu being that long. The other days 
I, I coach two classes and they're 30 minutes. It's all beginners. I rarely even get any rolling in. Sometimes I don't even do any specific drilling because I'm the odd man out and I'm just watching stuff. Right. And so my total caloric burn for that day is very low. And this is kind of a, 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 an interesting thing, but I think Barry Sears has made commentary around this. Greg Glassman, the founder of CrossFit's made commentary around this. Once you start eating these more nutrient-dense foods and maybe you're a little bit more fat-fueled, and it doesn't necessarily have to be keto, but if you're a bit more fat-fueled, there's an argument that you're actually a little bit more thermodynamically efficient, like you just don't need as many calories. Yeah. There was a recent paper that suggested that people on low-carb diets have on average maybe a two to 400 calorie per day uh, kind of increased metabolic rate, which is a little perplexing to me. Like it, it, it's the kind of like non-exercise thermogenesis. Like I'm still working my way through the paper and looking at the methodology and everything. But in, in talking to Tyler and Luis again, talking to people like Barry Sears and, and Greg Glassman, there's this sense that like a nutrient dense kind of fat centric diet, you may actually need fewer calories, not more. And this really goes at odds with what we hear from the, the kind of keto low carb space, which is so long as you keep insulin low, you can eat as much, you know, fat calories as you want, which I, I, I works for some people briefly. But then oftentimes, it, you know, we find we have examples of people that end up gaining significant amounts of weight their their uh, blood values are, are terrible. And so it's it's interesting, you know, Luis is about 165, 170 pounds very muscular, super strong. And his maintenance is like 16, 1800 calories a day. Wow. It, and, and I mean, like it, it, it's uh, that's just kind of, and for him to lean out now, he's even lower than that. And people will make an argument that like, well, he's downregulated his metabolism. Kind of like, well, is just having a bunch of heat produced from oxidative stress from poor metabolism of unnecessary carbs, is that a downregulation of your metabolism? I mean, technically that's metabolic rate. Technically that is energetic throughput through our metabolism. But Luis is like 41 and he looks like he's like 26. Yeah, so he looks very young. He's aging very, very well, which is all consistent with this more kind of uh, uh, fat-centric mitochondrial complex uh, utilization so, man, I, I don't know if I, I fully answered that question, but I think in general, people are eating way, way too much food. Um, given the caloric density of so many of our foods, even within kind of uh, paleo low carb circles, like nuts are real easy to overeat. Big like, you, you, you know, you can you, you can add up a thousand calories very, very quickly in, in that regard. And uh, for most people, you know, like used to when I would, uh, you know, put my my activity level into you know, something like the keto games, macronutrient calculator. I'm like, Oh yeah, man, I'm, I'm, I'm highly, active. I'm moderate. I'm no, highly I'm active. Not, yeah. Yeah. I'm not even right. moderately active. Like I'm sedentary. And yeah. I only, I only adjust on days where I had a really big jujitsu session, Yeah, you know, where I'll like actively eat some more calories to, to adjust for that. And, and, uh, otherwise, like if I just lift weights, it's such a paltry amount. I don't even adjust my, my caloric load up from that. You know? I mean, you burn almost, that's the crazy thing about having something like an aura ring where you start activity tracking, you're like, I strength trained for an hour. And it's like, you burned 115 calories. Like, Wait, what? Right. You know, right. There's almost nothing there. The same thing with jujitsu. I think our schools are quite similar where we're probably like an 80, 20 
of drilling to rolling. Yeah. So even if I'm doing an hour and a half, two hours of jujitsu, it's not, especially for guys like us who are fit, like that's not a, a huge demand on my body. Right. But what scares me with the, with the calorie topic is what I see a lot of people do and keto gains like Louise, he's great. His, their calculator is great. I like the way that they do things. They take things like thermic effect of food into consideration because what I see a lot of people do that is worrisome for me is they'll go to any old website and they'll calculate their BMR and just start subtracting hundreds of calories right. from their BMR. And they think that's the key to weight loss. And that's where you get into the tricky thing too of this the caloric deficit versus like, I love the work of Dr. Jason Fung, you know, and I've, I've experimented a lot with intermittent fasting. I still do like a 16, eight thing. Um, sometimes, you know, sometimes it's 13, whatever. I just think it's good to take a break from food every now and then. Right. But for that insulin glucose piece of things, but that's where I think there's, there's the chronic caloric deficit, which I think can be an issue. And then there's the zero calorie intake of this fasting piece where you get a spike in growth, growth hormone, you get a spike in noradrenaline, all these hormones that can be beneficial, keeping your BMR where it's supposed to be. It's just this calorie piece is so tricky and there's so much to it that it's like, what is the definitive answer on this thing? You know, And I don't know how to relay that to people. I can give them pretty accurate macros, pretty accurate numbers, but I don't really know how to teach them this piece. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, and it, it's... um. I've talked with Tyler and Louise just ad nauseum about, is there a way to simplify what, what they do? You know, we've done simpler things where it's like pretty much eat protein, green vegetables to satiety. Yes. Um, uh, if you have a hard workout, maybe a little yam or sweet potato, if you didn't, then you're good. And this is very in line with like Ted Naiman's stuff. Um, yeah. Even if you don't want to sit down and calculate macros, and funny enough, this actually gives most people an even higher protein allotment than what the keto gains folks recommend. But if you just say, okay, eat one gram of protein per ideal pound of body weight, yes, that, that's a, a decent place to start. And then um, let's say it's, it, 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 this can be really subjective, but let's say the gal is like, okay, my ideal body weight is 120 pounds. So you're eating 120 grams of protein. We're going to do something crazy and divide that into three meals a day, 40 grams at a meal. We're good. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know, and breakfast, lunch, dinner, you make it very uniform. So that can simplify things a lot. You know, I mean, it, it's uh, there's just kind of a reality that on that front end, I think it's challenging for folks. I've definitely simplified things a lot with the, the folks that I, I coach and, and make recommendations to, you know, like figuring out that, that daily caloric allotment. And then just do three even meals, figure out a couple of proteins, a couple of carbs, a couple of fats that, that tick those boxes and create a little matrix around those items. Yeah. And there's not going to be a massive amount of variety, but just run with that for two weeks. And then you start understanding, oh, okay, about this much chicken breast is what I need. So then it's like, well, when you go out to eat about that much pork loin and that much flank steak will also work, you know, it, exactly. it's within, you know, because the funny thing is people will get so freaked out about like weighing and measuring on a scale and that that's okay. But if you cook a chicken breast longer, it has lower water content. So the scale weight can be dramatically different than one that's still like moist and juicy and everything, you know, so like you can introduce a, a 10 or 20% error rate in your food just based off the way that you cooked it. 
you know, it, it, which is why it just makes me chuckle when people are like shaving off, you know, little, little slivers of protein off their chicken breast. I'm like, <laughs> you, you don't, you have no stand, like the chemist in me comes out. I'm like, stop, yeah. stop. Yeah. I, I'm not this detail oriented when I'm, when I'm like trying to make a pharmaceutical, you know, it, 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 because you, you have, you have no reference points for knowing whether you're going in the right or the wrong direction. So, yeah. That's the t- I mean, even with like, I, I manufacture supplements. It's like, even with, with food products and stuff, you have leeway on the FDA wise on, in terms of labeling things, you can be off plus or minus 10, 20% of the grams of fat and the grams. Like, it's like it, there, there is no exact science to this thing. And I love, I actually say that to people a lot that this, do you have any idea how much you change the nutrients of food just through cooking it? Right. It's not an exact science. And that's the trouble with trying to teach people out calories. It's like, at some point, you kind of throw your hands up and go, listen, man, this is kind of the best thing we have because throughout all of human history, we didn't track shit. Right. We just ate when we were hungry. Right. This is a very new thing that we're dealing with. What does the package say? And what do my macros from Justin say? You know, it's like, it's kind of ridiculous, but full circle the beginning of this conversation, when individuals are sick and need to heal, it may be something that we have to do for a little while. And that's what I try to tell people. I don't expect you to track for the rest of your life. We're trying to get you an idea. Like you said, Luis will say, hey, there's somewhere where you're overeating. People need to figure that out. Maybe you're not taking into account oils that you cook with, or maybe that handful of nuts was a lot more than you think, like you said. So you got to try to help people track to get them in the right direction. But ideally, I think we want to get people to a point where no tracking is necessary and they've built the habits of a proper human diet. Yeah. And, you know, people will freak out about this or like, oh, it's disordered eating or this or that. And I I don't even know how to address that sometimes, but uh, sometimes an analogy is helpful. And I see this whole process being very similar to just kind of um, uh, how folks run their personal finances. Mm. So some people learn a process and, and finances and money are another thing that we have to learn. Like children learn language. They learn how to speak instinctually, but we have to teach kids how to read and write. Those are non-instinctual things. Those are kind of uh, cultural artifacts that we have to, we have to pass on to these kids. Um, Money and the idea really of scarcity is a completely novel concept for humans because Throughout the vast majority of our, our history, if we ran out of most food in an area, one, there was always other stuff available. It was just kind of lower quality, lower, you, you know, lower uh, value. Or we moved. Like the, 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 yeah. the, the historical evidence for starvation in hunter-gatherers is virtually non-existent. We really only see that within agricultural times. And this really isn't an academic armchair thing. Like it, it means that there's really no need to think about either limiting or storing food in some ways, you know, kind of in our, our psyche. And similarly, we always lived in these small group uh, 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 collaborative efforts where if I wasn't successful today, you would help me. And then I, we would both remember, oh, you helped me. So I owe you a good turn somewhere down the road. And this reciprocity stuff is very powerful. But most people do a terrible job of managing their money because it's not an innate skill. And we will run people down both with regards to food and finances 
and say, oh, they lack discipline or they're a bad person or what have you. Right. The, reason, the reason why casinos are so so addictive is because it's that that unknown element and that dopamine release of, oh, maybe I'll win big. And that's something that's really powerful for a hunter-gatherer that's making some decisions about what type of risks he or she is willing to make in, in like food acquisition and, and stuff like that. It's a death sentence for somebody in the modern world. And so some people are taught how to manage their finances and, and some people recognize that they're in trouble and they're spending way more than what they make. And you have to go through a process of maybe having a very detailed budget and for a period of time that may be from weeks to years, you have to really live and die by that budget. Yes. But then usually over the course of time, you learn, you're like, okay, I've, I, I can kind of eyeball about this much goes to rent and this much goes to this and this much goes to that. And although you maybe do kind of a, a monthly or quarterly systems check, you're, you, you get a system that protects you from the tendency to just overspend. Exactly. And it's very, very, you know, and it's very similar to the the process that most people need to go through to protect themselves from overeating. Um, yeah, just seeing in, what it looks like. What yeah. does a good day look like? Because some people just don't know. Right. They really don't. It's like guys like you and I, like I can look at something and go, nah, I probably shouldn't be eating this thing or this plate is too big or whatever. We, we just know now at this point, but we had to learn that skill. Absolutely. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about is I am big on the childhood nutrition space. And this is because of what happened in my family with my niece being born 100% disabled and the seizure disorder and all these things really got me to focus on childhood nutrition. That's where I learned about keto, all those things. So I want to ask you about the work you did in Reno. Um, and here's why. So you did this work with police and firefighters. Um, the You worked a lot with some of what you call your core pillars, which is great, like stress management, mm -hmm. nutrition, sleep, moderately low-carb diet, all those things. And I think I have these stats right. In two years, you saved the city of Reno $22 million, which was about a 33 to 1 return on investment, correct? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So here's my question is, do you ever see this happening? Because what I'm seeing is it's great for us. Everything we're talking about right now, again, a lot of the people listening, they want the skinny jeans. That's what they're working towards. Now, in my mind, I am seeing this horrific trend of all of these adult metabolic problems happening in children. We have six-month-old insulin-resistant infants you know, and non-alcoholic fatty liver, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in children and a huge obesity rate and type two diabetes and all these things. So could you ever see the possibility of this type study, a Reno style experiment being done with something like the public school system and the lunch program to help get kids healthy? Maybe. I mean, it would have to be a private school that wanted to take this on. Right. Um, it's never going to happen within mainstream circles. Uh, the the public schools get uh, kind of like voucher reimbursement type stuff from the uh, USDA and the FDA. Um, there's some really specific guidelines they need to follow. The, the food that they're, they are given is appalling. It's horrific. And it virtually, whether you're paleo or vegan or whatever, it, it's just appalling. It, it, and, you know, uh, I think it was Morgan Spurlock in Supersize Me. He made the point that the bulk of the food that's, that's provided for public schools is also provided by the same entities that um, feed and water the prison system. 
And it, it's this thing with the super incestuous connection to the, you know, subsidized, uh, 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 you know, uh, farm products. And it's basically junk food. It, it's really a huge problem. But I mean, the unfortunate thing is you're to the degree you would see something like this happen. And we had an idea around like starting a charter school adjacent to our CrossFit gym and then having kind of like a relationship with the local farm to table scene and like sourcing food and everything. And we never really could get the the wheels on the wagon for the charter school program because that was just a whole other, you know, thing. But I, I could see something like that, but it, it's going to have to come from kind of a, a private circle. Um, right, it's right. definitely not going to happen in the public school. To be honest, one of the things I'm really investigating is going outside the United States and actually looking at Mexico and Central America to talk to people about this stuff because they are rapidly heading down this, this road of type 2 diabetes as well. And yeah, yeah. Something that's really underappreciated in, in the people in these developing countries, it's a sign of affluence to be able to eat non-traditional food, to be able to feed your family from boxes and bags and cans shows that you have made it, that you're, you're yeah. at least middle class, maybe heading towards, towards wealthy. And so it, this is one of the things that is just completely lost on people, that there's a social status associated with, you know, eating processed foods. One of our very dear friends, she's basically like our, our kids adopted grandmother. She's from El Salvador. And she said that people in El Salvador were virtually starve before eating mango and papaya and avocados that literally just fall in the streets. Yeah. It, 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 now, it, and the crazy thing is like the tourists will come in and then they'll collect some of the stuff and feed it to them. And they're almost kind of chagrined because like the tourists are stoked on this, but th this food is considered peasant food. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and so there's a real social stigma and literally people will just about starve to death before eating it. Um, and so... But there is an interesting opportunity, you know, to go in and I've done a little bit of work and it's been really well received where you basically go in and you show pictures and tell stories of 1920s, 1930s, when people were still eating traditional foods in these areas. And it's not remotely paleo, but it's, it's more of what uh, Michael Rose might call an organic Neolithic diet, you know, whole, sure. whole unprocessed foods and just pointing out. Nobody had nobody needed a dialysis center. Yeah. Nobody was on insulin. Yeah. Nobody had type two diabetes. You know, people lived well despite you know a real paucity of of medical interventions. And then with the encroachment of westernized uh, uh, practices, and I've also got an idea of of rolling in the story of the the tobacco industry when they lost the ability to really market the way that they wanted to in the United States, they started marketing that same way to the poor people of developing countries. Yeah. And so that's where they, they gain market share. So there's two interesting stories of kind of talking about like kind of globalization and the displacement of traditional food systems and just basically saying, don't do what the United States is doing. Mm. Don't buy what the United States based food companies are selling you. Go back to your traditional life ways. You guys had it right. You're being sold something that's going to kill you. And, you, you know, it's always a dodgy thing, like whitey McWhiter dude going in telling anybody from a different culture, you know, to do anything. But what I'm largely telling them to do is don't listen to my culture. Yeah. Don't do the things that the, the you know, the, the white American culture is 
telling you to do, find your own traditional food systems and abandon this other stuff. And the, we've had, we've done a, a little bit and in, in doing some work with uh, Luis from Keto Games. It's been really well received. I kind of feel like the die is cast in the United States. I think that the systems are so entrenched and we're so politically divided. Um, trying to go in and get anything changed in the public school system is impossible. Yeah. It's just impossible. The United States is too big. There's too much inertia. But, you know, like in Costa Rica, I could go in and talk to a couple of schools and they're like, yeah, man, we'll give this a shot. We'll totally give this a shot. And, and yeah. uh, it, because you also point out to them, it's like, hey, you guys are, aren't the global reserve currency. You can't just print money. So when your healthcare system implodes from type 2 diabetes, you really can't paper over that. And in, in talking to a few even medium level governmental officials about this stuff, they're like, this totally makes sense. Yeah. And, and you know, like the only thing that I'm selling them is go back to the way you were doing things. Yeah. The, you know, that's the only thing I'm selling them. So it's interesting. Because the consequences are real and they know it. The consequences are real. But I, I think that the United States, the the die is kind of cast. I, I think that we're just going to go through a very, very rough patch. And then there might be some, some good stuff on the, the backside of that. But I, I think that we're going to have a really rough time. And to the degree there's an opportunity to help large numbers of people, it's actually outside the United States in developing countries. And that's where I'm honestly going to focus the bulk of my efforts. And maybe it'll be well received, maybe it won't. But the, yeah. the initial response I've had is really a lot of gratitude that they're like, wow, you're acknowledging our culture as, as being superior for us. And it's like, yeah, damn straight. It served you for, for eons far better than what this processed food nightmare is, is going to serve you. This processed food nightmare is going to destroy your culture. And, you know, like I, I've been doing work with the Chickasaw Nation for the past year and a half, almost yeah. two years. And uh, they're in a very similar realization point that uh, possibly the most injurious thing that has happened to them it, it, in a history of injury and insult one after the other is that the, uh, the, the complete loss of their traditional food systems and the adoption of the processed food, it, you know, kind of baseline, maybe the most injurious thing that's ever happened to them. And they are trying to figure out how to get out ahead of this. You see it everywhere too. I've talked about this before, even with China and Japan, where the last 15 years, it's, it's as America's kind of woken up to the, hey, this sugar thing might be not awesome. Well, so what happens is soft drink companies start pushing into other markets and the diabetes rate goes through the roof in just right. span of a decade, you know? Right. And it's, are you, have you met Hillary Boyton? Have you been introduced to her? Not, no, no. Out in California. She, I was introduced to her through Diana Rogers, which is why I asked, but she's called the lunch lady. And oh she, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. She runs a farm-to-table lunch program, but again, that's a wealthy private school, right? And it's very small, right? It's, so it's, it's, yeah. I'm with you, man. I just don't see. It sucks. It breaks my heart, but I don't see a way that we get that we shift the paradigm with with the entrenched powers that be, like you said, you know. Yeah, and I mean, this circles back around to some of the stuff we talked right at the the top of the show, which is the, um, you know, the meat tax tendency. Yeah, like they're yeah. they're wanting to tax things in a way that is, is to the degree that we would have any hope of getting programs like this into a, a low income, you know, a, a disadvantaged scene, they're, they're going to make it doubly hard to do that. And yeah. the, the options that come out of that are not particularly good. I mean, again, it's just mainly kind of processed grain products that are long shelf life, inexpensive, and it, it's seemingly inexpensive, but incredibly expensive and injurious in the long term. 
Yeah, without even mentioning the the environmental aspects of that whole thing. Yes. But, yeah. So I know you're I know you're coming up on time here, man. So so I I love your story so much because you've you've been in the shit, man. Like like you talk about the autoimmune issues and the way you felt back then and everything. So I just want to ask you this question, and it can be anything, can be nutrition, fitness, non-nutrition, non-fitness. In all your years here on this earth, man, like with the stuff that you've learned being in this space, if you could just give let's say three of your top tips for the listeners to just live a more fulfilled life. Oh man, sleep more and better because your waking hours will be so much better. If you are, are well rested, uh, get out in the sun more because that plays into so much of this other stuff. And then um, I get, I guess really try to find not try to find um, by hook or by crook, find community that uh, makes you better, you know, both challenges you, but, but makes you better and that you can also contribute to. And uh, you know, if you're well-rested, you get some sunlight on your skin and you've got some people that love you and you love them. Everything, everything else is kind of details, you know, everything else kind of falls into place. And I think that that's a lot of why you and I like doing this kind of health coaching gig. I think that's probably why we're kind of attracted to, to jujitsu and everything. Like it, it, um, all of those things end up kind of ticking those boxes in, in somewhat parallel path. I would really like to get to Costa Rica where we have mats outside and you get both sunlight and jujitsu, but I, I've got to sneak up on that. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, man, I couldn't agree more. That's and we'll 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 do another episode one day and and talk about jujitsu. I really wanted to touch on jujitsu and everything too, but I just think that it's, you know, I think there's something to be said for struggle too. I, I think that a lot of the, the depression and fulfillment piece of this is is it sounds horrible to say, but for 99 percent of Americans, life is too fucking easy, man. Right. And it's just when you when you get that level of humbled and that level of trying to master a skill where you can't think in terms of. 30 day resets or seven day sugar fixes. It's like you're three years in and you're struggling to be a blue belt. Like you have to think long-term. And I think that that would, that would change a lot of lives. It, it does. Uh, my coach, John Frankel, he has a great saying, which is you've got to love jujitsu more than winning. Yes. And it, 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 it speaks to a process like being committed to a process. And so you can extend that to a lot of different, a lot of different like relationships, you know, personal relationships. So if I want a good relationship with Nikki, um, I've got to love her more than I want to be right. Yes. And that doesn't mean that I just completely roll over on stuff, but you know, I could be fidgety or cranky about some topic, but it's like, okay, am I going to go the extra effort to try to like, you know, engage this person so that we can have some, some intimacy and some closeness, or do I let my ego, you, you know, run, run that thing. And there's just a, a lot of different parallels with that. And they, they, you know, not to, I, I would love to come back on you. It's just a joy talking to you. You ask great, great questions. Um, this is some of my annoyance with, uh, the kind of hacker scene and the like, we're going to talk to the the most successful people in the world and figure out the the tiny skill set that made them different. What's always missed in that is that there's just a, a oftentimes a, a disproportionate personal talent that may be non-replicatable anywhere. And it's very cool to look at, but it's cool like looking at an ant farm. It's like, okay, that's the way an ant farm works. But I will never have the genetic gifts of this person or the abilities or whatever. You know, like looking at the the training regimen of an elite athlete is interesting, yeah. but it may be so completely uninformative for what anybody else needs to do. And it, it's, um, it's kind of that hidden promise that like, 
but we're going to find the one or two easy things that you can do to become a whiz at, at jujitsu or whatever. And it, it's just a lie. It is. And it's, and it, a lot of folks are very good at walking this edge of kind of hinting that there's this promise of like, you know, easy gravy train on the back end. And there's, there's just a reality that, um, if you want to get good at anything, there's just a, a time investment. And if you're passionate and maybe talented, it may happen much, much faster. Like BJ Penn is one of these rare people that got a black belt in five years because yep. he just, he was hatched out of the womb to do jujitsu, like just his flexibility and his neurological wiring and everything. He's very, very, very good at it. Um, but it, there's still like five years. That's a, that's a, that's a commitment, even for somebody that's a, a genetic aberration. So I guess just in closing with that, and this can, again, apply to a lot of different situations, it's always great to hear about high-level success stories, but it may or may not have any bearing on what we individually do. Like, we, we still need to just get back around and chop wood, carry water, and I, I think make some plans, make some goals. Um have a, you know, have a way to assess those, those plans with regards to reaching the goals. And if it's not working, then, then we can change, change route. And that's where having a, a really kind of uh, rationality based approach that also, you know, honors our, our, you know, emotionality and spirituality or whatever, but it's got to be steeped in, in some empiricism, you know, it's, it, it, yeah. there is a little element of um, bridges that were built in the Roman era are not particularly different than bridges built today. There's concrete and rebar and triangles. They don't make them out of balsa wood string and ovals because balsa wood string and ovals make shitty bridges. So, you know, there's some, there's some (laughs) universal truths that do pop up and we just need to be willing to uh, critically assess that stuff to be on point. Yeah. It's it's this idea of, uh, I always like to go back to finite versus infinite games. It's this, we get so hung up on these short-term goals. It's like, Oh, you want to be 10% body fat. Okay. What if we do that in three months? Then what? How's your life change? Right. Cause you got another 60 years left on this earth. You better think of some other stuff to come up with. You know, right. Like, right. It's the process. That's what I love about jujitsu, like rolling. It's like you either win or you learn. Right. And that's it. You just keep learning and keep getting humble. And I think that's important, man. So I'm, I'm with you hundred percent. Yeah. We should do this again, man. It'd be great. You, you let me know and I'll come, if I didn't ruin your career, then I'll, I'll come back on and try to do it on, on the second go around. Yeah, man, let's do it. Well, and more importantly, at some point, we need to link back up and we need to train together again because I really want to do that. Hopefully, uh, Palo FX does not have a jiu-jitsu tournament going on this year and they just have some mats and we can just get in some rolling. That was ridiculous last year. Yeah, man, that was crazy. I was trying to find you. I'm like, what is going on? And I'm like, where? They're outside? Anyway, yeah, <laughs> we we missed out on that last year. It was a bummer. Yeah, but. yeah. Awesome, man. Well, thank you. Yeah, man. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, so real quick, what's the best way for people to connect with you directly? Give all the social links and all the things. Oh, man. Uh, RobWolf.com. You know, there's actually links to everything. I'm probably most active on Instagram these days. It seems to be where I'm the least frustrated by the shenanigans going on in the world. And, And I'm very interactive on that. Like the answers you get are actually from me. I've never farmed the, you know, the curation of, of Q and a out of that, mm-hmm. uh, getting back in and putting some more content on my YouTube channel. So it's like uh, uh, YouTube forward slash Rob Wolf, I think, but again, all that stuff you can find off of robwolf.com. Perfect, man. That sounds great. And people definitely need to check out your Q and A's on your podcast. I've been loving those, man. They're oh, great. Thanks. So. thanks for a ton of fun doing that with Nikki. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, man. All right, brother. Well, thanks again. And we will talk soon. Have a great rest of the day. Take care. You too. All right, man. Bye-bye.